Welcome, Welcome to, to the Time, Time Bandits, Bandits Minute. Minute. Time Bandits Minute is a podcast in which Duncan Shields and Curtis Blaze analyze and scrutinize the 1981 Terry Gilliam movie, Time Bandits. One minute at a time. Uh, so yeah, this is minute seven of Time Bandits, and this is what happens in this minute is Kevin sneaks off to bed with a ton of supplies, and an unlucky contestant dies on television. Oh. National television. <laughs> So, we have someone joining us today. Ooh. Who is that? Who is that? <laughs> Who's this other person joining us today? Oh, it's me. It's Niall McGowan from Bat Minutes. Here I Hello. am. Hello. Bat Excellent. Niall, tell us a little about yourself. Besides Bat Minute, what do you do with your life? Uh, well... <laughs> now I'm on the spot. It's like, oh god, damn! I'm not that interesting. So it's like, oh, this is terrible. Um, no, I'm a proofreader by trade, and uh, yeah, from Ireland, and uh, do a podcast about Batman uh, where we look at Batman movies one minute at a time. Like, <laughs> I didn't, uh, I didn't realize you're a. a- a proofreader by trade. You're very detail oriented as a as just a, a person, I guess. Eh? You think I have the fine eye for details, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like... <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> what was your first experience with watching Time Bandits? Uh, uh, well, yeah, but, but pretty much it was a, a thing of knowing its reputation, like knowing that it was a very, very well regarded movie by like. You know, a lot of my film education came from reading like Empire magazine and stuff in yeah. the late nineties, early two thousands. So the journalists who were living like grown up with Time Bandits were, were just rave about the, <laughs> about it all the time. So I was always on the lookout to see if I could find it anywhere. Uh, but yeah, we back then, you know, when I was a kid, you just sort of had to accept like if it's not in the video shop and it's not on TV, you ain't getting to see it, kid. Um, so yeah, it was. It wasn't until I was like eighteen or nineteen by the time I actually got around to to, to seeing this. And um, yeah, as I said, like you know, initially didn't. It just wasn't what I was expecting. So I was like, I don't know if I like that or not. Uh, but yeah, frequent revisits have been like, no, no, this is this is really really solid. And um, you know, it can't help but like even just you know as, as it you know growing old, but it's like oh, just even this cast like. I'm, my my love for like Shelley Duvall has only grown over time as well. So the fact she's yeah. in oh, it sure. too, and uh, we even covered with um, on the Batman at Patreon. Um, Tim Burton did a an adaptation of Aladdin for Shelley Duvall's fairy tale theater and stuff. Yeah, and then that just opened up a whole oh, can yeah, of worms yeah, for yeah. us. It's like, oh, Bob, well, I've never heard of the show before. Shelley Duvall used to do a fairy tale theater show. This is amazing. Yeah. So, it's so um, good. Yeah, that was Time Bandits is the reason I watched, even gave that show a chance and went and watched it because mm. it wouldn't have been something I was into based on the name. Yeah, yeah, and so it's like yeah, you right. just got the you got a real vibe of like just everyone having a really good time making this. This as dark as the movie gets. It's just like yo, yo, friggin' oh, everyone, everyone here's buddies, aren't they? I can imagine Terry Gilliam and Shelley Duvall getting on like a house on fire. You know, we, you know him and John Cleese and Michael Palin are already buddies and stuff. And it's like it just has a, a, a feeling of like camaraderie about it like uh it's again you know, even when the bandits themselves show up it's just like yeah that's a, a really effective unit of people they all just seem like even though they're not the nicest to kevin initially over you do get the bond over time and it's like yeah this, it, it, it all works it's just a great um this is you know it's a, it's, a, it's a good story well told basically tell us a little bit about where people where can people find you uh, well, people get me uh, on Bat Minute, which is a show I do where we've looked at 
the Batman movies from 1989 up to and uh, including very, very soon, uh, Batman and Robin. And potentially beyond that, we don't know what we're doing the season after, but we'll continue on in some fashion. But, uh, yeah, then you, uh, looking at that, you know, minute by minute, uh, three days a week. Uh, Duncan was on there at the end of last season, actually, for, uh, the, the, the death of Two Face, actually. Oh, in Batman yeah. Forever. Oh, it was and, good uh, minutes. Those were some good minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, looking now, knowing, staring down the barrel of Batman and Robin's, like, there are no good minutes. <laughs> They're all gone. But, um, yeah, you can find us, uh, on any, any of your normal podcatchers and the, uh, on Facebook, we have the Batman and Listeners Cave where people come in and just, Chit chat about whatever, whatever they want, really. If it's a tangentially related to Batman in some fashion, it's, it's game. And, uh, yeah, I guess on Twitter at Batminutes and Instagram at The Batminutes. And yeah, if you just Google us, you'll, we'll, we'll pop up. But, uh, yeah, it's a good, it's a good show. It's bad co-host it with, uh, my friend John. And, uh, it's, I, I think it's a lot of fun. Anyway, <laughs> at least. So we get the, uh, we open with the tail end of Kevin's dad telling him, no noise. And, uh, mm. and he silently goes off to bed. Now, this is an interesting shot here because the camera pans past some more amazing decor. We've got a ceramic flamingo, I think. I think it's a ceramic flamingo. And then we get another one of those green transparent glass long-necked birds kind of mm. things. And we get this fantastic 70s like brown finish rotary dial phone. So it's like one mm. of those old Bakelite phones. But the, the phone is beige and the receiver is a dark brown. A lot of brown in this house, you know, mm. which, and I kind of covet that phone. And there's a painting of a sad child with glistening tears in their eyes in, uh, in, in ratty clothes. It's all there. <laughs> it's probably painted on burlap. It's all very seventies, which is, <laughs> it's, it's how a 1981 house would probably be because it's, 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 it's just mm. barely into 1981. So there'd That's be a lot it. of. It doesn't look like Very my 70s. house growing up, but it looks like the photographs of my my house when my brothers were growing up. Basically, <laughs> like everything in there. It's like yeah, there's all a lot of sort of rough looking jumpers and uh, yeah, a lot of <laughs> things that look like they've just aged horribly, but they're probably brand new. Yeah, yeah. It looks like my grandma's house. Like. <laughs> I'm sure you guys have also talked about it as well, like the. Um, like the, the the plastic on the sofas and stuff as well. Oh yeah, it's just oh, like yeah. yeah, the old that's. Thankfully, my grandparents never did that, but I know I knew people. It wasn't their parents; it was very specifically their grandparents. Always used to have like, yes, you don't ever take the wrap the, the wrapping off the chair just in case you wreck it and stuff. But I think it is a good indication of Kevin's mindset. It's like you can't even get comfortable in your own house. You can't even sit in the chair properly because there's plastic all over it. So he's over getting into his mentality of like, yeah, it's not feeling settled within oh, this house. Every household. time you sit down within 15 minutes, you're getting a sweaty butt sitting on that thing. Ugh, nothing, nothing comfortable going on here. You're exactly right. <laughs> it's a strange thing. It's not, it's not porous. And I mean, that's like when I first saw this movie, uh, I thought this was something that Terry Gilliam had invented. Because I, I saw it when I was around Kevin's age for the first time, and uh, and I was like, "Oh, that's so weird. That's so Terry Gilliam <laughs> wrapping the furniture in plastic. What bizarre, <laughs> you know?" And then it was like my parents who had to say, "No, some people literally do that. That's like mm. a, a preservative it's a, maneuver. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. Because what's the point of buying nice furniture if you can't I guess, see it properly? Like it's the it's thing a, is, a yeah, I agree. And but I wonder, like in this shot here, it, you're like. Now, are they badly wrapped? Like, is is are the chairs and couch in Kevin's house like poorly wrapped? Like, did the parents do this themselves with like tape and and 
a sheet of plastic because mm. I've seen in the plastic furniture I've seen in real life it's been kind of like vacuumed, uh, like contoured, you know, no seams plastic yeah. around yeah, the couch, be, right? It used it used to just come with it fitted. The company yeah. would just have it. Yeah, and I get the impression it kind of started maybe maybe the whole concept started with them that is the furniture company shipping stuff in plastic and then grandma and grandpa not taking it off because mm. that's a really good idea for preserving it. I wonder. Mm. Well, that would be a pretty cool has, origin. This has the bunchiness around around the uh, upper part of the chair mm-hmm. and it's all loose down by the bottom. So that suggests to me that they are perhaps homemade. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I can imagine a situation where... Kevin one time spilled something on a sofa <laughs> and his dad was like, that's it. And just like, you know, went out and got it like freaking saran wrap and just yeah. <laughs> went to town. And it was like, that's it. We're never having this problem again. That's right. And no, this never, they never, they never bought grape juice ever again. Yeah. <laughs> She's also, <laughs> that guy who plays Kevin's dad though. Like, uh, was it David Dacker? Yeah. He does have an extreme aura of asshole about him. Like, so <laughs> I, I distinctly remember him from um, two things I kind of saw a lot when I was a kid. Because I over here in the, the UK, uh, porridge, like the Ronnie Barker. Yeah, I don't know if you guys yeah. ever seen, seen porridge? But I've um, seen uh, I've seen the two Ronnies, and I saw like I think I saw an episode of porridge because my dad. Like over here, we got uh, we got Benny Hill, Monty Python, and the two Ronnies, and I only watched them because you know my dad was from Glasgow. Yeah. So like I had that that kind of UK connection, but I'd never seen either of Kevin's parents before. So I I read that David Dacker was in uh, was in Porridge along yeah. with his mom. His mom played uh, Ronnie Corbett's girlfriend in an episode of Porridge or something mm. like that a few years later. So yeah. he's he's very cool distinctly he's in the the last episode of Porridge. Porridge is a great great seventies British sitcom about just a guy people in prison basically. Okay. And uh, the opening episode is like uh, Kate Beckinsale's dad, Richard Beckinsale, gets sent to prison. He's not playing Kate Beckinsale's dad; in it. he just happens to be <laughs> in real life. Yeah. And um, but yeah, the last episode is him getting out. Then, and he almost blows his release because he get he keeps getting into a fights with David right. Dacker, and it becomes oh. apparent after a while. It's like it's because he's become institutionalized somewhat, and it's only Ronnie Barker figures out. I was like, you're only fighting this guy because you're, you're scared to leave the prison now and stuff. Right. And, uh, but yeah, because that, because he's such a con- confrontational character in Porridge, as soon as I see David Dax, like, Oh, that guy's a dick. I hate him so much. <laughs> and then he's also in an episode of a, like an old anthology series called Thriller. It used to be oh. on over here. And he was actually in an episode where he played an aggressive ex con who was threatening Bob Hoskins life the whole time. Wow. <laughs> and cool. then um, it was one of those old tropes. That he came back like, Bob Hoskins and his girlfriend were, it was like really pre-fame Bob Hoskins, like probably 70s when he had hair and stuff. Uh, yeah. Well, questionably had hair. Uh, attempted to have hair. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they, they run into David Dacker and his partner. It's just, it turns out in their room or something, like, yeah, we were criminals and we left our, our loot here one time. So they end up taking Hoskins and the girlfriend hostage and making them do huh. stuff in order to escape and stuff. But again, because of that, as soon as I see the guys, like, yeah, he's... He's just a dick. Basically. You don't like that guy. And uh, that's awesome. I, by contrast, have never run into this guy. I find it very interesting in Porridge that they were already dealing with the concept of institutionalization. Mm. To me, that seemed like a new thing uh, when I read about it in uh, the the novel version of Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, about institutionalization. That was the first time I ran into it in my life. 
That yeah. might have been the, a lot of people's first time. I know that a lot of the, the UK conversations around the prison system and uh, social welfare and stuff was happening like prevalently, like back in the 60s and the 70s in a way that I don't know that it was quite being discussed by the American public in the same kind of way. I'm not I'm not sure. But mm. that kind of uh, television shows that dealt with that, I yeah. found um, were were kind of mm. being, yeah, being a lot done. of lot of stuff in for like a like a, a lively sitcoms porridge was always dealing with like corruption within the justice system and yeah. like <laughs> the idea of like habitual criminals who had nowhere else to go so they'd constantly commit crimes just to get put back in prison and how that I, was a reflection of british society in the 1970s about how horrible everything was and stuff i guess uh i guess we uh, like americans had uh hogan's heroes right so i guess there was dark dark sitcoms happening but mm. that was a, a, a weird contrast i had actually quite recently where uh, i watched um just again just talking about like how rough a state uh, kind, of, kind of a miserable state england was in the yeah. 70s where oh yeah netflix has two new serial killer documentaries and you got one on the night stalker richard ramirez and I watched that and I was like, it's like, it's horrible. It's, it's absolutely horrifying with the stuff that guys did. But to watch it, it's quite like, oh, cause it's eighties LA. So it's, it's very sunny and poppy and there's a lot of like synth soundtracks and stuff on it. And it's kind of more palatable to watch. And then there was also a documentary on the Yorkshire Ripper. So that's right. written in the seventies and it was gray and miserable and <laughs> yeah. everything was horrible all yeah. the time. You're just like, I forget. Like, yeah. Why would anyone ever want to live in England in the seventies? It seems terrible. Like it's yeah. probably, it's pretty bad now, but it's like, it, geez, back then it seems like I can't imagine how anybody was ever happy, happy then ever. Uh, I remember Billy Connolly, the Scottish comedian was talking about if you're walking around Glasgow on a sunny day, everybody's going to be really sad and looking punished. And if you walk really close to them, you can hear them saying, uh, we're going to pay for this. <laughs> like there's, there's like, uh, there's just this, this doom that like, I remember like I saw this movie called rat catcher and it was, took place during the garbage strike in, uh, in Scotland in, I think the seventies or the early eighties. So there's just, Local toughs would give kids a nickel for every rat tail they brought back, and the kids would scurry about the giant mountains of garbage that had been mm. left out for like three months for the garbage strike that that was continuing well into the hot, hot summer. And you're mm. just like, oh my god, oh my god, <laughs> this is hellish. This is hell yeah. on earth. But I think uh, it's, even the tone seeps into Time Bandits itself yeah. because it's yeah. such a kind of for like a children's fantasy it's so dark and harsh yeah. that yeah. ends on a note of like hey fuck you kid you know yeah. it's like yeah. the, the world ain't gonna hand you everything on a, on a plate you know so yeah it's uh but yeah the, 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 you know if it's terry gilliams's love of the culture just like yes i love how miserable everything is here i'm gonna for sure imbue it into my children's film as a as a british person you you, you definitely need to embrace it and i see a, a lot of people do especially the comedians Mm. I was just going to say, what is the what is the reality of England? Is it as dark as every uh, TV show and movie makes it look there now? Or I mean, like, because I'm just I'm, I'm just kind of you know I'm in here and hopping back and forth to Ireland where like I grew up, and it's like I, everything seems fine in his book because everyone's just used <laughs> to it, I guess. But like, yeah, if you ever watch a British drama, 
it will be distinctly more miserable than any American drama you watch because it's no, just like, yeah, everyone's right. going to have – like even like the soap operas over here are like – you know, you see watching an American soap is all like, oh, Sunset Beach. And it's like yeah. really sexy people out on like, you know, <laughs> villas and things like this. And you watch like, oh, British soaps that everyone apparently was, you know, is addicted to. It's miserable people who work in grimy laundrettes. And yeah. everything horrible is happening to them every single day. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I guess that is a reflection of life. Maybe, you know, people are going through some stuff, not as with the frequent drama as you would get in this, but it is yeah. overhanging, I think. I think the weather is a part of it, too. It comes yeah. from a predom- yeah. predominantly rainy country, so that can, like, we feel that, like, in Vancouver here, we've got some, uh, it rains all the time. And if you don't like it, it's a horrible place to live. Luckily, I love, I love the rain and, mm. uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful city, but. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, before we move on, I just want to—I've got a quick question, kind of for for I guess Duncan. Yeah. Growing up in in Iowa, we didn't. The only thing we saw uh, that was British was Monty Python and and uh, Benny Hill, and that was on PBS. Yeah, yeah. We we didn't get really we didn't get exposed to anything else that was that was out there from England. We didn't like get imported TV or anything. We had our uh-huh. three channels. Was it different in Canada because of you know your connection? Uh, we got getting... we got some uh, UK imports because of our you know our colonial connections right like we didn't rebel and shake off the the British rule we just kind of like asked for a a better organization <laughs> after after a while so now we've got like a Queen's representative here but our you know our country isn't based on revolution so we'd still get some UK imports but. The, ex- the the experience was kind of similar. On PBS, we would see Doctor Who, Monty Python, Benny Hill, and my dad would bring home, you know, VHS tapes of like Billy Connolly concerts and uh, audio tapes and and stuff like that. So we had a lot of uh, UK connections just from stuff we got in the mail from my dad's family, and uh, yeah, stuff we saw on PBS. Mm. See, that's so funny. To to my point of view, sitting here uh, with both of you, Billy Connolly was nothing to me until he was a dwarf that one time in that one movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that was baffling. To like, and see, just like, and well, why why is he entirely like CGI? Natural... Why isn't Billy Connolly there? Like, what, <laughs> Why didn't they fly him overboard? So no, 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 no. And he seems to just be a national treasure to people that, are, that oh, yeah. grew up elsewhere. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, very. Like, yeah. If you contract down just the, just the special, an audience with Billy Connolly... It's bound to be on YouTube or something, but that that is potentially the funniest stand-up set I've seen in my entire life. Like yeah. it's oh yeah, it, once I once I heard that I should watch him, I went and checked out all this stuff, and I'm just a huge fan now, and I understand mm. it. But when when he was a when he was going to be the elf king or the dwarf king or whatever, and everybody was saying, "Oh my god, Billy Cup," I was like, "Why why do we care about that? Why is that?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the fact that he wasn't uh, it just wasn't that great a role and he wasn't that great in it and right. it was just like it was just a, well, another blow to this movie for us I mean, like, oh my god how many how much salt dude, can this friggin hobbit trilogy rub in the wound for christ's sake yeah i i wasn't in a situation i don't want to be too sad and take it too down but didn't he have cancer was he wasn't he not no. actually able to go out tromping around on a horse or something at the time no it's uh Oh man, what is it? It's amniolateral sclerosis, or it's Lou Gehrig's oh, disease, or something. It's, yeah. a, it's, okay. a, it, it's okay. a degenerative neural condition where he said he's never going to do another stand-up set because he's really mm. having trouble getting around now. You, you do see uh, recent think... interviews with him where it is like you. It's it's kind of like that Michael J. Fox thing. Where it's like you yeah. can you can see it there in the way yeah. he's talking and stuff. And it's like yeah, maybe like 
you know, maybe a lot of people wouldn't want to remember him that way. So it's like, yeah, because yeah, he was such a high energy person to then see him like, you know, robbed of that. It's a bit like, well, yeah, maybe he, maybe he himself is like, I don't want my, my legacy to be, you know, sort of not tarnished, but, you know, to be marked at the end by this, but, uh, by yeah. this thing. Well, you know, as, as weird as it was that he was all CGI, it did add some some weight to that role that he was still bringing his personality to it, at least. Yeah. yeah. I saw him, uh, I remember I saw him, this <laughs> turning into the Billy Connolly minute, I saw him in a good movie <laughs> called uh, Fido, oh, yeah. where it was like, uh, yeah, post-apocalyptic, post-zombie apocalyptic, <laughs> where there's a little, mm-hmm. 50s, a little 50s neighborhood that's managed to survive behind the walls that keep the zombies out. But they've got shock collars around some zombies to make them into servants and pets right right and uh it's 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 very funny and it's a wonderful it's a wonderful film Mm. well moving on to this next shot i was very impressed with this uh how terry changed tone from one thing to another as he followed kevin up the stairs yeah first of all shooting that thing in the mirror so he's able to go from darkness to light and uh and and keep it all in one shot that's just Mm -hmm. I, i like those kind of shots that kind of artistic thing that he brings to it that another director would have just had coverage and then did a couple of close-ups and you know yeah yeah there's no need for this shot to be this complex and it's like well what he did it <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's it's lovely it's kind of almost like a through the looking glass uh that's what i was shot. gonna that's my, that was my note this is like yeah because now this is the last we see of kevin in quote-unquote reality in this yeah. movie, so they, this is literally a going through the looking glass moment of like, yeah, he's he's out of this this world now until the end, essentially. Uh, I got a question right. for the two, for the two of you. I've got a question. I can't for the life of me make out what the framed thing is on the screen left side beside the mm. mirror. It's like it a looks like it's something like from a car. Like they just yanked a bit of metal off. Like, like oh, it's yeah. the undercarriage of a car. Like it's stuck it's in a the frame. Pro- propeller or a boomerang, like a three-pronged boomerang or something, but the proportions are all off. I'm not quite sure what that could possibly be. That is yeah. very odd. It, and it the camera... Like uh, it could be a boat propeller. Yeah, but like a really weirdly shaped one. I, I don't know if there's... and I don't know if it's just me, but when the camera zooms in on the mirror, does, uh, does the film speed up a little? It looks like it kind of jumps you know the frames per second kind of zooms in a little bit like in mad max when they would uh they would jig around with the frame rate mm. well boy that well, has to be really planned out to do that what what do you guys make of um the stork like why they have a stork there because again like mise-en-scene nothing's ever accidental like there's a reason that painting's there there's a reason that stork's there like what do you think is it like an indication of like well in a child's mind the stork is what you know it, kevin's after just talking to his parents who are essentially horrible to him and it's yeah. maybe in his mindset of like yeah i couldn't possibly be from these people like the stork must have brought me like rather than be a biological product of these these two people i you like know, it is it something along those lines is there something maybe because it's more it's leaning into a more fantastical element of like that concept of, you know when we're about to go up the stairs and emerge into a fantasy realm in like two minutes time okay let's let's break this down a little bit first of all Building on what Alan said last week, and I think he's got a, you know, he's got a pretty good clue about about that. This being sort of Kevin as an adult dreaming about this later in life, and this is how his dream mind uh, it works out losing his parents. Hmm. If okay, so building on that, Niall just now says we're through the looking glass uh, by doing this shot in the mirror, and I think that has some validity because Terry Gilliam has, you know, has a has a knack for working with symbolism. 
So what we've got here is we've got a realistic stork looking towards his parents, you know, towards the right and in the shadows. And then we've got a, uh, like an abstract stork looking the other way, the way that Kevin is going. You see what's oh, going on yeah. here? Yeah, yeah. And this is all in front of the mirror. And I think that's mm. what's going on. I don't know if the stork itself has any meaning, but we've definitely got these two. We've got this realistic thing going to the right, and we've got the pointing to the right or looking to the right and it, with a painting that we can tell what it is. And then we've got this abstract, same kind of stork looking to the left with a painting that, like, what the hell is that? You yeah, know, yeah. I think we've, we, we've got in this shot, we've got everything going on. I believe this is the exact shot where we switch over. Yeah. Oh, you think so? It being the dream. Yeah. Okay. If, I if don't know. Kind of, if you look at the symbolism of what's I, going on. Well, I think, and not to be a stickler for an ornithological stickler, but I'm pretty sure that's a flamingo. Oh, okay. I think that's a flamingo and not a stork. But mm. it's hard to tell because it's white. So it might be, it's got kind of a flamingo-ish head in the shadow there, but it, it yeah. Anyway, it whatever. color grading too. It, it could be color temperature and we're looking at this on a you know, on a video 40 years later. I think so you could it's, be right uh, about the, the Fleming I, thing. I'm pretty sure that it, like, yeah, it's obviously white, so it's hard to tell. But I think, yeah. like, my take on it was always just that these are 70s knickknacks. Hmm. Uh, I, will say, of, I will say that the that sad kid painting is typical of households. <laughs> yeah. even, even, like, yeah, your grandparents' houses today is like, well, who are these sad children? And these like, it might even, uh, it's possible that's even macrame. Mm. Like that might not even be a painting that might be embroidered, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's uh If it was it, going to be truly 70s, it would be that it would be that nail and string art. Yeah, sure man. Sure. <laughs> the, uh, I, the the painting on the left, um Is that a painting though? Boy, like, it's hard to tell because it looks like it's shadowy. It looks like it might be something that's mounted inside yeah, of a frame somehow. It's a chunk mm. of metal mounted inside a frame and I just I have no idea what that could be. It could be like that thing that the kid threw in Mad Max. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> like a, type a three-pronged of boomerang. Metal boomerang. <laughs> I don't know. Well, but yeah, then he goes up the stairs, and I and I and I love. Uh, I just that's a great shot, no matter what. And I like the idea that this is him going through the looking glass. And I wonder mm, if it right. is Kevin in the beginning of the shot, or if it's a body double, right? I don't well, know. I was thinking about that too. Um, I don't if think the so. Camera, okay, if the camera is mounted. At the base of the steps, and because Kevin walks in front of the camera after yeah. he, let me just work this completely out. He goes behind the camera. Yeah. But the weird, the very weird thing is, is he seems to be climbing the stairs too soon. Yeah. For how quickly he passes at the camera. Mm-hmm. Like he's already kind of halfway up the steps by the time his body leaves the leaves oh. the camera to the left. Yeah, that can't be a body double. What am I talking about? We see him very clearly, and then he leaves the frame and starts going up the stairs. One thing that I was wondering, though, is I was wondering right. if the shot in the mirror has been, like, inserted. You know, like, if uh, like I don't know if the technology existed back then, and it would look more ropey than it looks. But he mm. does seem to be going up the stairs too quickly. And the way that the frame rate kind of jigs a little bit when he uh, when it zooms in. I just wonder if there's an effect going on with that. Uh, with yeah, that shot. it looks like there's like in some form of edit, basically. Some something something's afoot there. Yeah, like if 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 it was today, I'd be like, oh, that's a hundred percent a green screen shot, like in uh, Contact or whatever. Mm. But this is uh, 
I wonder. I'd be very curious to to know what Tara Gilliam says about this particular shot. Mm. But I love the idea that it's through the looking glass. <laughs> Look at that wallpaper. Oh my god, that is some bizarre. Almost like skulls, skulls or no, no. Stuff. That wallpaper is a minotaur. Oh, that looks very minotaurish. Sure, sure. Yeah. You mean a minotaur? Hey oh. <laughs> <laughs> we just we just got the we just got the uh title of this episode. <laughs> there you go. The minute door. So uh that, then that, we that, get sorry. That was well it's just like uh say like when Kevin actually gets into his room though, this the dangling skeleton thing. Yeah. Uh like I took that to be foreshadowed like uh, uh, everything in Kevin's room as I'm sure we'll talk about in the next two minutes. Yeah. Is foreshadowing for the rest of the movie. Yeah. But like, do you take? Is this skeleton supposed to be the skeleton that's within the dangling cages later, or do you oh, think it's something else? I like that. That's a good call. I thought it was just like an omen, a little bit of a dark omen. Hmm. Because I think everything's like a literal, like no, this, you know, if if you're taking it as his dreams, like well, everything yeah. in the room will come into play. So like, yeah, like there's, a, there's a dangling cage with a skeleton, and he's got a dangling skeleton right next to his door. So I like it. Right. And it's right. kind of bunched up in that good, weird way as well. Well, we're going to find out later. Well, we're going to talk about it later. But I like. Yeah, uh, it I is, like. Just it as almost we... is symbolic. It's almost like. It's almost like some things in this room they just use to plot out the actual shots. <laughs> <laughs> like, and then like, in <laughs> the, just as Kevin, you can hear in the background. You can hear the host of the game show say, "No, no, Kate Powell is not the film star." Hmm. So that's uh, getting the. Um, her getting the question wrong that's the end of that <laughs> now it looks kevin when he opens his door here it looks like he's got a drawing taped to the front of his door you know it like is. where where a teen would have like a, a keep out or a, a jason's room or something attached to it is and this looks kind of like a, a man flying in a in a winged contraption like uh like a daedalus or an icarus kind of thing or like a, mm. a, a oh, right, I've actually a right i've actually got screen caps of all this uh-huh. And it precise. It, it actually does say, "Do not come in." And it's just a guy in a suit standing there in front of a door. And the door somehow is throwing the shadow. So I don't know if the shadow is representative of just light coming through the door or whatever. Oh, there he is. Yeah, I see now. He's just a dude stand, and the door is like it's like a wall in perspective, and it's the door is throwing a shadow, and it says, "Do not come in." Now that you say it, I can see it very right. clearly. And there's a dude in a yeah. suit standing there. And he seems to be, I don't know, is he holding his scissors like Freddy Krueger? That's probably, I'm probably just seeing too much into it now. Right yeah. Mm. <laughs> All right. But then he closes the door and he's, he's into his room and he walks past, uh, and this, I love this great little sound edit here because he closes the door and it cuts off the sound of the game show. Mm-hmm. Now there's silence. So there's, it's a nice little edit that sort of puts us in the house and connects the two rooms and connects mm. the two scenes. I like that. I like those little things like that. And we see a, a British palace guard figurine on the bookcase behind him on top of what looks like a portable chess set, which comes into play. And then, uh, yeah, the camera pans over with Kevin past, again, a ton of drawings and cutout magazine pictures taped to his wall. Mm. Yeah, we get a better look at these things now. We've got this cutout Greek. We've got this uh, this yeah. poster of the different kinds of Greek warrior armor, mm-hmm. and it is exactly what we're going to see uh, Mr. Connery wearing later. Yes, yeah, Mr. Yeah. Connery. There's a a moment later. I'm not too sure if it's this minute or next minute, but like there's a shot of Kevin in bed, and 
like you know that's re- directly behind them and you do hear a siren in the background too which yeah. is like mm-hmm. like a fire mm-hmm. fire engine basically it's like it's all it's all coming oh, together already what the hell yeah that's what i wanted to ask because i wasn't sure if that was an ambulance or a police <laughs> or a fire engine but because i don't know my uk sirens very well mm. but that's I, uh, I, I, i'm i'm for the purposes of this, I'm taking it to be a fire engine. <laughs> okay, it, it, it would, it would, yeah, that would make sense. Mm. Of course, then you even see in the the bed is a picture. It looks like the, the two pigs there already. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a little photograph of two pigs behind his head, like as he's taking out the torch and stuff. Uh, right. Yeah. Oh, like, oh look at that! that. Yeah, the yeah mm. they're little. There's literal pigs there. Awesome. Good yeah. catch. Mm-hmm. And then there's the ship. Uh, there's a bunch mm-hmm. of. Boots? Oh yeah, that's the that's the, the the cutouts for the paper warrior that he's got beside his chair there. Yep. And is that an island? Looks like somebody running on an island. And what's this drawing here? Oh okay. Tell. This is driving me crazy. What I've got so far, what I've been able to make out, hold on. It says like... strange things we and then I cannot I cannot capture the rest of it. There just isn't enough there isn't mm-hmm. enough image data there for me to make that out. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, okay, certain, yeah. it's strange things we and then something something something. Hmm. And, then, yeah, and, the then, actual... and then he ends with and then he ends with laughter. Ha 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 ha. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like Kevin's kind of starting to scare me a little bit now. <laughs> with the, with that, but... Well, the mind of a child, right? They can go to dark mm. places rather innocently. He gets to his right. uh, he gets to his bed and starts unpacking the front of his jacket. And he starts with a flashlight and a torch. And now this is really cool. I thought what he brings out next was a, a like a brown leather notebook, mm. but that's the Polaroid camera. Right. Oh. It's a it's a collapsible camera. It's I, I I looked it up and it's the SX70 produced from 1972 to 1981, and it was the first instant photography single lens reflex camera in history. And this was oh. like a an earlier model, as it doesn't have the uh, sonar range finder for shooting in low light. But this model came with the carrying satchel that Kevin has strung across his torso here. Nice. And one of the cool things about this particular carrying case is that it's constructed so that it unfolds with the camera. So that you don't have to take it out of the carrying bag if you don't want to. It's got like slits and vents in so in in places that when you unfold the camera and pop it out, it's still encased in leather. Hmm. So an original model of this goes for pretty big dollars on the uh, on the old web, but it's got that wood finish to it, like everything did back then. <laughs> All the hmm. technology had a wood finish, and blenders and TVs and cameras with everything like a wood carved. finish. Yeah. You know? I was wondering, like, who, because you think within a a movie, there's like, oh, we can, you know, give the kid a a satchel and give him a camera and all this kind of thing. Like, at what point does someone come to Terry Gilliam? Or did he already know himself? Like, well, you know, you can get this particular camera, which also has the thing, the the bag with it and everything. And it's like, oh, that's perfect. We can actually, I'll save us a bundle of money to just use this actual set that you you already get rather than having to, uh, like, go and source individual pieces to to place together. I think they were just, like, around. Yeah, I get the right. feeling Terry Gilliam brings a lot of his own stuff to to movies. Yeah. Like, here, use this yeah. for sure. Yeah, I remember uh, in my I had a Polaroid camera for a while. My dad, after he passed away, he left me uh, his, in his estate. There was a little Polaroid camera and a much later model than this one, and it it didn't fold up. But I took pictures with it. Like I took like fifteen pictures with it. Um, ran out of film, 
and went to get more film only to find out that like Polaroid had folded or hit rough times and it wasn't producing film anymore. And I was like, Oh my God, I was just like taking pictures of like forks. In, <laughs> like a, and I was like, Oh God, I've ran out of film. So I, I hoarded like a few more packages. Wasting and, uh, it. I hear that boutique places are producing Polaroid film these days, but uh, I, I always regret wasting those shots. Do you still oh, yeah, have no, your, your, your hordes that you sit like much like the, in the, in the Hobbit, you Duncan just sleeps <laughs> upon a pile of Polaroid film. Once every four <laughs> years, I take a picture. No, no, I, uh, <laughs> I've still, I've still got the camera, but I don't have the, uh, I think you can get the film these days, but I haven't really looked that deeply into it. Mm-hmm. Well, now's the there's time. Not, there's, there's nothing like a Polaroid though. There's, there's something really, uh, perfect about the framing of it. You've got a little, you've got a bar at the bottom that's a bit bigger than the border at the top, so you can write something on it. A, a lot of uh, continuity f- uh, photographers in um, film that all, all they used for a long time was the was the Polaroid. So you get all these in these older films, you've got all these like little to no makeup, badly lit shots of like Winona Ryder and and like Ben Stiller as like a 17 year old and all these like shots of different movies where they use them for continuity. So it's kind of, I think yeah, we came across a couple of um, continuity shots from Michael Keaton in Batman, where it's just him standing around Wayne Manor looking miserable, but the flash is really bright on him. So he's half the time he's got his eyes closed and stuff like that. Exactly. Exactly. They just need like a clear shot of the clothes. So mm, mm. they're usually not too aesthetic when it comes to the actors. <laughs> well, yeah, I can confirm that the, that the film is still being made. There's a, there's a gentleman in my area that does, that just works with um, Polaroids and that's all he does. He just goes out and he's kind of, kind of in, in demand because of it. Excellent. And, you know, gets that whole, gets that whole seventies aesthetic Polaroid thing happening. For sure. So, I, so I can't say where, but I can tell you that it is totally available. Good. Good. Well, maybe I'll look into that. Yeah, you should You should start taking more Polaroids, man. Yeah. To uh, unleash we, the, the Kevin within. Unleash the Kevin within. So <laughs> like, all. It's like, like your, your wife is in bed with you, just like, Jesus, Duncan, would you go to, go to sleep already? You're just sitting with your coat on and the friggin' <laughs> the camera ready to go. <laughs> We do have a wardrobe at the foot of our bed. I, I no. Get yourself, draw, draw yourself a nice picture of an astronaut. There you go. There. there you go. Uh, so, one to ten, yeah. as long as we're here, as long as we're talking about that, uh, how much after seeing this movie as a child did you wish that it would happen to you? Hmm. Well, that's, that's the thing. I, was a solid... I, I, I didn't see this as a kid. I didn't see this until oh, okay. like I was in my late teens. Okay. Um, it's kind of a rare situation because I was a big Monty Python fan growing up and stuff, and you all like and the them and their associated movies of like, oh yeah, you got like your, you know, they did a Wind in the Willows adaptation and you know things like that. So Terry Jones would pop up here, there, and everywhere that that kind of stuff. Yeah. And um, but yeah, I'd always known the Time Bandits existed, and it was one of these things, but it never seemed bizarrely for British TV, it never seemed to be on, at, huh. like, you know, yeah. at any time where I ever caught it. Uh, and so it was. I just knew it had this great reputation. And I think I was like, yeah, whenever I, maybe I got like my, my first computer or something, and I had the the ability to, you know, sort of find these things for myself. Um, yeah. Then, then eventually I find like, oh, Jesus Christ, time, time bandits! I better actually watch this thing. And I think it was. I think I initially I didn't even really uh, like it. I was because I was I had this kind of thing of. I thought it. I thought it was supposed to be like, a, oh, it's like a real light-hearted kids movie, and then not knowing how. 
I, I assumed it was going to be weird, but I didn't realize like how harsh it could be and how dark it is. Yeah. And so afterwards, I was like, I don't really, I didn't even get that movie. And then the next time I watched it, knowing that going in, I loved it because it's like, oh, now I, 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 my expectations have been met of what this thing's supposed to be. And yeah, ever since then, it's been like, yeah, I, I get it. But like, I don't. I, I, I can imagine you know, as, as a kid watching things of, you know, oh, you know, the magic school bus or something like that, where you're going into proper, like, fancy adventures and things like this. But Time Bandits does have a, an inherent, it's almost borderline nastiness to it at times. Yeah. Like, I don't know well, if I want to go on this particular adventure. That's something my friends and I were discussing the other day. Niall, how, how old are you? What is your. I'm currently 33. 33. Okay. So, so you didn't get the experience probably like Duncan and I did. Growing up in the 70s, it was very different. TV, things like The Love Boat, where they regularly depicted really dark things like rape and, and you know, using drugs to get people to go to bed with you and, and things like that were just completely normal back then. Mm. And mm. so when a, when a movie came, uh, came along like this that was very dark, it was just kind of part of the landscape for us, I think. Duncan, yeah. would, you, would you agree or would you disagree with that? I never saw it like that, but I can concur with you a little bit. Like the darkness in this movie for me, I mean, the dark, because I, I saw it when I was Kevin's age, you know, or maybe like two As years older. I. Yeah. Right. I think I was 11 when this came out and, uh, and, or maybe even 10. And I was like, great. I love it. I feel like I can identify with this kid and I'm on this adventure with this kid. And I thought it was a perfect depiction of how kids are sometimes just like ignored by their parents. Yeah. Yeah. Go to bed, you know? And you're like, no, but the Babylonians, they Mm. did really interesting stuff. They're like, I don't care. Oh my God. It's (laughs) nine o'clock. It's your bedtime. You know? And I was like, (laughs) now as a parent, I understand it. But then as a kid, I was like, oh my God, somebody gets it. Like this was one of the first movies I saw where the kid wasn't like, you know, a cutesy, weird manufactured plastic robot child this was like an actual kid so smart for his own good yeah but the darkness there i think like the 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 death like what coming up next is that like the death of the contestant on the tv show that made me go uh is he dead (laughs) you know (laughs) and like the parents at the end but like the the sort of the dark valleys that that roll through it. Yeah, I'd say that I was just kind of like used to darkness showing up on TV in a lot of different ways. Mm. So I never thought about it like that. But yeah, there was a there was a lot more darkness prevalent in uh, in television back then, mm. just floating around. Yeah, that's the thing though about like things like that. Like, not to, you know, throw us back too far, but like the the you know the do not come in sign stuff. Yeah. Like, do you think that picture of that guy on it, is that supposed to be Kevin's dad? Like, he's drawing, like, a guy, it's a guy in a business suit. Maybe. And kind of just barking, barking orders, whereas, like, that's all we've ever seen that guy do is bark yeah. orders at his is kids. He, so. Is he holding a catalog? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the picture's like, this is you. This is you outside my room. This is mm-hmm. where outside I want you room, to be. Right. <laughs> right. Stay out. <laughs> Well, yeah. you had you had brought up the guy drowning in the uh, in the tub of custard. I just want to I want to start out the conversation on that by saying that the uh, the model uh, in this shot definitely is not one of the actresses in the movie, as we had speculated earlier on an earlier minute. Not in this shot, no. But she looks like I mean, no. she looks like she might be in in blackface. Like she looks painted. Mm. This doesn't. Eh, no, I, she's just tan. She's just okay because it's, it's dark, but then she's got like bright lips and like blonde hair or whatever right like it's uh well i'll have to take oh, no, a look at the, the shot 
If you go up to, uh, well, I don't know where to sort of do. I, there she is. Uh, I guess so. It's to hard to tell in the shot. There's something. Oh, she's got black hair. There's something a little unnatural looking about it, but it might just be the color. But it's definitely well, the fact not that she's the She's smiling and mugging as this guy yeah. kicks and drowns and struggles <laughs> in the giant pot of custard. Was it? Yeah. As, are American game shows as focused on dumping things on people and putting people. That, so that. Not so much like a primetime no. adult show, but that reminds nope. me of like there's so many kids TV shows that are like game shows that are based that on did, dumping people in gunge or some kind of gunk. That did not happen. That did not happen in America until Canada gave us that gift with you can't do that on television. Yeah, that was a, that was the first time I ever saw. <laughs> there was it. no there was no getting stuff dumped on you at all until until that show happened. What yeah. were the rules? And, if then, you said... and then all of a sudden Nickelodeon came along and said we need to dump stuff on everybody all the yeah. time. <laughs> Slime, slime was everywhere after that. Turns out kids love getting right. slimed. Mm. I got little was... kids still. I've got like a you know a niece and a nephew, both under ten. I was like, let me tell you, kids still love slime. Oh yeah, God damn, they're still obsessed with slime for some reason. I know, and as a parent, I'm now realizing, oh, this is awful. You're trying to hide <laughs> the whole concept of slime, hoping they don't see someone with slime on TV. Just what oh, was the uh, what were the rules <laughs> with you can't see that on television? If you said I don't know, I don't know. You got yeah. slapped, right? And I think if you said yep. water, you got a whole bunch of water. You got water, yeah. yeah. The uh, the host here, you can see this little guy kick it. I don't know how they did this shot exactly. I don't know if he can breathe. Mm. I don't know if they just dumped him in there and like we're like, okay, hold your breath for ten seconds. Okay, pull him out, pull him out. I'm not sure <laughs> how they did this. That it, almost has to be it, except he doesn't. This is the '80s, so there isn't digitally removing wires or anything. The yeah. wires mm. were just gone. Yeah. I figure they just... There's, uh, no, there's no pulling him out. And even if they did pull him out, man, if the wires failed, how would mm. they do that? Yeah. It's a, it's like, sure. It is such a typical shot of from a, a British game show, though. Like, not so much the guy in the custard, but just, like, a really chirpy, <laughs> happy host with, like, a, a, a wizened old woman who's like, oh, yeah. well, I'm a, I've had a lovely day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, darling. <laughs> it's, yeah. I've seen it, like... A, you know, I've seen Michael Barrymore in that situation. I've seen freaking Dale Whitten in that situation. It's like, that's, that is British daytime TV. It's just that crap all the time. Yeah. Nothing but it? like little old women and like very, very chirpy, happy hosts in their 30s. Was it Bruce Forsyth we were talking about in the last minute? Yeah. Was, uh, yep. yeah. Oh, Bruce Forsyth is not Well, was. Yeah. But he, oh, he was legend. an absolute legend, though. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. terrific host. Uh, as yeah. is Jim Broadbent, to be honest with you. Like any time, yeah. you know, he pops up in anything, we're like, "Oh, it's Jim Broadbent!" Like, Jim Broadbent. Kind of lifts the mood a little bit. Yeah, yeah, totally. And here he's saying, "Ah, dear. Oh well, that's your money or your life." Like <laughs> <laughs> that little flourish he does. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the many ways, I do kind of want to see what the rest of the show is about. Cause it's like, go back down the stairs so we can watch this thing. A full episode, yeah. We cut back we go to into Kevin the Terry Gilliam. Like, do you know what what were the rules of this game <laughs> exactly? Like, well, I actually did plan this all out. We discussed that a little bit in the last episode, and I, I kind of forget the conclusion we came to. It had something to do with oh no, we talked about a few different scenarios about how you had to choose. Like the the show didn't the show, title didn't make a lot of sense to me because it was like right right you know either take the money or we kill you. And I'm like, um, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll take the money. Or it was like, you know, you can choose to take the money or you can choose your life, which means like, okay, so I can take the money and die 
or I can live and not take the money. Okay, I'll I'll live. So I was I'm kind of out of the loop on what it what it what it meant, and I think it was you two that came up with a plausible uh, a plausible gameplay scenario for the for the show. Well, we had come up with a scenario where you you get the either Her, she answers the question and he stays alive, and she gets the she wins the kitchen, or right. the only way money could come into it is if he dies, at least she gets the insurance. Or I was thinking right now she's got a choice. Do we save your husband's <laughs> life or do you want the kitchen? Like you, you, you got the, <laughs> oh, que- oh my God. Yeah. Like you got the question wrong. So now your husband's upside down in the custard. So now's the time when you have to choose, you know, the money or your husband's life. Right. So, well, and then the conversations they're having, she has chosen the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, you know, we have we haven't seen this kitchen, so like it might be worth. Oh it, no, yeah, we did. It's the it's the Moderna, uh, two thousand whatever it's called. Yeah, it's very the, fancy. The nine adjective <laughs> automatic uh, kitchen. But we cut we cut back to uh, Kevin in bed here, and uh, he's got this balsa wood stegosaurus model on his bedside table, which is really cool. I want to talk about the Flash comic. First, I just want to say that uh, he's dressed in brown corduroy pants, sneakers. He's got a bathrobe on over his jacket, uh, sweet Polaroid camera, uh, and he's got the leather satchel carrying case. He's very prepared. This kid is a total scientist. And there's also there's a robot beside him on the bedside table that's clearly the robot that activates and starts walking around in the next minute. So that's a bit of a, a bit of a continuity error that I noticed. Well, or maybe it's two. maybe it got down there itself. Who's to oh, say? Maybe or maybe he's mm-hmm. got two. Right? He's got a lot of yeah. stuff in that room. The 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 Stegosaurus though. It's just like that. Really reminds me of um. You guys must have got it the America too. Where like it'd be like oh you know the dinosaur magazine comes out once a month and you you'll get little bits of like oh yeah here's here's the thigh this this month here's the head. And then you, over time, construct the, the thing yourself and stuff. That's a neat and, uh, idea. We had to get these from museums. We would go yeah. on museum trips, and and that's gift where shops. we would buy these kind of things. Yeah, museum yeah, gift oh, okay. shops. I think this this was like the long con for parents, I think, over here. Where it's like, oh, oh yeah, three pounds a month. Oh, I think the, probably the end long... up costing you about like 45 pounds in total. The, the America version of that was um, we would get cards. We'd get cards with dinosaurs on them, kind of like trading cards. Hmm. And you would, and they they started off with a special holder for these cards, and then they'd start sending the cards. And if you didn't keep getting the cards, then you wouldn't fill up your holder. Mm. So the long con was you had to keep getting these cards in order to get a complete set, and it uh-huh. encouraged that. And it had the stats on them, you know. It's kind of like Pokemon cards, but dinosaurs. Yeah, there was a bunch of I know, and with action figures recently, they would do that too, where you'd. You'd uh, you'd buy the action figure and included with the action figure would be like Apocalypse's fist, his left <laughs> his left fist, right? And then, but if you bought like all all of the X Men, you'd be a, able to assemble a giant Apocalypse. <laughs> or if you if you bought like all of this Fantastic Four and their guest stars, then you could assemble a giant Galactus or something like that. So yeah, yeah. Although it's just like the idea of having anything that says anything, any magazine that has comes with Apocalypse's fist blazed <laughs> on it. So I'm like, oh, yeah. buy that one. Jeez. <laughs> yes. Sign me up. It's like, it's now, like Apocalypse, <laughs> Apocalypse's thigh. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. that, was, that was good, but you know, I'll, I'll take <laughs> that it. That was good, but I'll take it. 
Duncan, tell me about this flashcard. Okay, now this was a delightful surprise, and this is one of the things, one of the reasons why I love getting into uh, the movie by minute. Now, I took a look for the cover, the little bit of the cover that we can see there, and I tracked it down, and it is issue number 286 from June 1980, and uh, it's The Flash, and it features the first appearance of the Rainbow Raider. And that is the the Rainbow Raider, the silhouette on the front there. That's the Rainbow Raider pulling out, uh, putting out spectrum blasts. And uh, he's okay. a vil- he's a villain whose color projecting uh, uh, glasses can alter people's moods. So he uh, he can he can blast different colors to make people feel different things. And of course, comics being the colorful medium that they are, right? Like that's why like. Green Lantern's weakness was yellow, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> but this goes a little further. Uh, there was a nice little treat here because this character, the Rainbow Raider, he showed up in the Green Arrow television show in the uh, the Arrowverse, as it's called. Oh, nice. And uh, his, his secret identity name is Roy Bivolo, like Roy G. Biv kind of thing, but Roy Bivolo. And if you wear mirrored lenses on your sunglasses when he casts his power at you, then it reverses the effect and he whammies himself, which is hilarious. Oh. That's, that's the way to defeat him. You have to wear mirrors. And that, uh, but it's just like every time you see someone coming with a mirror, he's like, blast! Not oh, again. dang it! My only weakness! Mirrors! He just like, puts up his hand and he's just like, oh, okay, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> he just walks away. Boy, that's you not got a very me. Well thought out, you got me. That's not a very well thought out weakness. Every reflective surface that yeah. is your enemy, if you're that guy. Yeah, that's why he's kind of a Yikes. small, he's a small time villain because yeah. of that very specific thing, I think. <laughs> but uh, the arrow is. We got to get down there. The Rainbow Raiders escaped. It's like, oh, he'll walk past the window and defeat himself soon. Yeah. Who cares? He'll, he'll turn himself in. We'll find him. He's in that pub downtown. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah Arrowverse is filmed here in Vancouver and uh Roy Bivolo uh this guy the Rainbow Raider he's on that show as part of a loose grouping of of uh C-grade villains and he's played by a friend of mine. Ah, he's what? played by what? yeah he's played <laughs> by an actor named Paul Anthony and Paul Anthony runs this excellent variety show here in Vancouver called Talent Time which you can also see on Amazon Prime and on YouTube. So shout out to Paul Anthony and his uh, excellent show Talent Time. Oh. So the only thing the only thing that could make that that story better is if Craig Warnock's band played there, whether or not it's <laughs> Craig Warnock or not. Yeah, no, no. I mean, you have to get this guy on just to, to, to break down the psychology of the Rainbow Ranger because, <laughs> like, yeah. well, the, the, no one knows this cat this character better than you, man. So you you really got inside him. You know what makes him tick. Who is Roy Bivolo? Tell us, Paul. <laughs> but uh, then Kevin turns off the light and he takes aim with his camera at the wardrobe. And that's when we hear the siren go past in the distance. Probably a mm-hmm. fire truck. And then this is an awesome bit uh, sequence here because Cam- Kevin pans his flashlight around the room. And we get a closer look at a bunch of the stuff that we've seen before. So we see the puppet stage, the drawing of the astronaut. We see he's got a board game called Blast Off from 1969 Mm, looks like a board game where you try to like send a rocket to the stars looks like sort of a a davy crockett comic or a cowboy comic maybe and there's some uh fabric leaning up against the side of the wardrobe i don't know if those are like semaphore flags or kites i'm not sure but uh you know what what else is on his wardrobe there did you get some good captures 
What no, the, what? I didn't get any. It, it was kind of the camera was panning, so you know it blurs on it. Because that um, one at the there's bottom. There's nothing really to add to what we. Yeah, I know. That's the thing I was trying to make out. The thing that we thought looked like the Fortress of Ultimate Darkness in yeah. uh, Minute Two. There. <sighs> the only so, thing I would add to that is that maybe if you, there seems to be some sort of vehicle at the bottom, it yeah. could perhaps be a fire truck. What are your thoughts on that? I don't know. Have you were you able to make anything out in that picture? It looks like a photograph. So the one on the very bottom there kind of looks like a black and white photograph. There's like a car with a building behind it. Um, could be a still from a movie that he liked. I don't know. Boy, I don't know. To me, it still looks like a like a pencil shading drawing. Charcoal. Yeah, charcoal. it could very well be. Could very well be. You think would would it be but too to much for to that, them to? It looks like there could be a. But would it be too going. much for them to actually have like? like a James Bond comic or something like along those lines to allude to the the idea that maybe the reason he's seeing Sean Connery in this dream is because he's like really into that as well. Or is it like, that, that's, that's a legal battle. We don't want to get into by yeah, alluding to things like that. Yeah. And I don't think he's really a, a James Bond guy. He's more of a historical, uh, his history guy. Right. I don't know if he's, if he's really too into James Bond, maybe, I don't mm. know. So I am just putting a pin in this for us, Duncan. Mm-hmm. I want to check out the background of the of the puppet play later on with with the background of this thing, or the background of this uh, little marionette stage that he's got with the background that the bandits sing in front of later. Mm-hmm. See how similar they are. Mm. Yeah, that's a good idea. That would be a good thing to really compare because I think it's probably one to one. I imagine they probably used this exact puppet set for that scene not the big stage just rebuilt it big right but the guy there's a guy literally doing a puppet show when we first meet napoleon right so it might actually be but anyway for a few seconds anyway (laughs) yeah for a a few seconds is there any is there any trace of napoleon in the bedroom because it seems like for such a integral feature oh yeah yeah. there's there's stuff all over this bedroom there's napoleonic soldiers figurines on horseback in uh in earlier minutes and i think in a later minute here and there's uh there's also this minute he even if, oh no, that is the next minute here. Yeah, so we we do see evidence. It's not super prominent considering how big of a chunk of the film he is, but there is uh, Napoleonic soldiers kicking about in the back of the mm. room. But Kevin's getting tired. Someone's getting tie tie. He's got a case of the tireds. Yanni boy's getting Yanni, and uh, he's he's going out. You can do it, Kevin. Stay awake. You can do it, Kevin. But no one crashes to sleep like a kid. Like they're like, I'm a little tired. You know, like they're just they go. Oh, just out. A hundred miles an hour, and then they're out, and you can like pick them up by their feet, and they won't wake up. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but so he's we get he's, our first we get a big yawn. He's drifting. He's also a little despondent because he's like, oh my gosh, you know, like in the distance, a dog barks. Like it's really. It's just a, a gust of wind. There's nothing happening. So, <laughs> But in terms of uh, the differences, that brings us to the end of the minute, but in terms of the differences between the script and the comic and the novel, um, they're all pretty similar. In the novel, it's a school satchel that he's got slung across his shoulder, and uh, we do hear a clock chime one somewhere in the house. And uh, in well, the so comic... He's been at this, like, yeah, like... Some... What what For time would, uh, yeah. would that show be on? Like, what, 9 p.m.? I, I, I yeah. Yeah. About like, 9, yeah. 
And then it's only three I'm panels. Nine nine thirty. That show's ending possibly ten. Possibly. Mm. It's three panels in the comic, but it's the same. Except uh, we hear a church right. bell chime twice in the comic, which means he stays up until two a.m. Oh my god! Well, and the script talks about a bell chiming too. Yeah, and it, in the it script, make it it's, into the movie. The old lady contestant guesses Caruso, who is a man, and that's how she gets the question wrong in uh, in uh, in the script. <laughs> CSI Miami fan, clearly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or the, I guess it must be a different Caruso, because I don't. This is way before CSI. The Time Bandits Minute is a fan project hosted by Curtis Blaze and Duncan Shields. The movie Time Bandits was written by Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin and is presented by Handmade Films. The novel Time Bandits was written by Charles Alverson and is based on a screenplay by Michael Palin and Terry Gilliam. It is published by Severn House Publishing. The comic book adaptation, Time Bandits, was written by the team at Marvel Comics and presented by Stan Lee. The screenplay, Time Bandits movie script, was written by Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin. It was published by Doubleday Dolphin Books. You can find more of us at timebanditsminute.com or text us at 712-830-7373. You can also find us at Facebook at Time Bandits Minute, the podcast. Thank you to the Star Wars Minute guys for graciously allowing us to steal the format. If you would like to listen to other Movies by Minutes podcasts, check out moviesbyminutes.com. Join us next time for Minute 8 when you hear the robot say... (laughs) 